Welcome. Trying to keep the audience in line over here. Struggling today. They're excited. Um, we are moving on to our fourth uh, discussion with a uh, group of Bush School students who have been taking my decision-making and public service course. And they have a report uh, that they've generated uh, talking about how to improve decision-making for public servants. And this group actually honed in on five specific decision-making strategies, which I'm excited about. It's kind of fun to see all the different approaches the students take. But before we uh, move on, I'd like to give the students an opportunity to introduce themselves. Uh, my name is Colton Haffey. Muriel Pinnell. Caitlin Malik. Kaylee Corley. I'm Caroline Old. Excellent. So thanks again for taking the time. Thanks for the work on the project. Uh, I really enjoy these conversations, so thanks for having them with me. Uh, would someone like to start and give us the big picture of your report? Sure. Um, the main takeaways from our project is basically decision making is hard and humans are very bad at it <laughs> and when you are a public servant the kind of risk associated with you being human and decisions being hard for you goes up because mm -hmm. you are trying to make big decisions for lots of people and there is lots of consequences attached to the decisions that you make and so you need to be making the best decisions that you can and sometimes that doesn't always happen. And so what does that mean and what does that look like for you and the people that you're working with? Yeah, you highlight something from the very beginning that I'd also like to highlight, which is the reason this is so important is as a public servant, your, uh, your decisions don't just affect you, right? They affect the people in your community, they affect the people you're representing, um, so they have larger consequences. So it's really important that if you're gonna go into this area that you have some decent ideas about how to make good decisions. So on that, walk me through your very first decision-making strategy that you cover in your report. Yeah, okay. Um, so the first strategy we talk about is outcome bias. Um, and we focused on that one uh, because uh, people, like the definition of outcome bias is people taking outcomes into account in a way that is irrelevant to the true quality of the decision. Mm. Um, something that every public servant knows is that every decision you make is public and it's in the spotlight, especially in this day and age when social media is like just all over the place and we're all connected. Um, and so we felt that it was important to use outcome bias because of the nature of the social media. Um, <laughs> You're doing just Sorry. fine. <laughs> You're doing just fine. Um, uh, and so um, I think it's really, well, we think it's really important, as I said. Um, uh, and I titled this part of our presentation Combating Against Outcome Bias because okay. um, in a lot of ways, public servants have to fight for the decisions that they make. So we're not, I know Kaylee mentioned that we don't always make good decisions. Um, but sometimes we do make good decisions and the outcomes are not what we expect and that's something we can't control There's a lot of luck and uncertainty in things which is kind of frustrating and annoying, but I mean it's the way of life it's um, how things go and um, It's really important for public servants to be aware of every decision they make has an outcome and so one way to like combat against this is by being extremely transparent um, multiple studies have shown like Americans value transparency and honesty. Um, you can see that from the past uh, mm -hmm. presidential election with Hillary's emails. People like focused on the emails saying, oh, well, you're not protecting, you're not being transparent, you're trying to hide things. Um, a lot, that's why a lot of times when we um, 
talk to politicians, we demand their like tax returns because we want them to be transparent and we want them to be honest citizens. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes it's easier determined than not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, um, and so, a way to combat against that, as I said, is uh, being transparent and just mentioning your faults and saying, "Hey, this is the decision I made. This is the reason why I made this decision." Um, posting that and just letting the public know that you made this decision. Otherwise, they might turn around and use that outcome against you and be like, well, your choice sucked, and so now we're all screwed over when you could just defend that and say, hey, I made this decision because of the variables that were placed in front of me, and so regardless of what decision I made, it wouldn't have had a good outcome. I did what was best. And if people see that, then they'll tend to accept that decision more instead of just focusing on the outcome. They look at the whole process. Yeah, and this is also an argument, I think, for like really engaging system two and planning, like having a process as to why you make your decision, right? Because if you can show why you made a decision and you made it for good reasons, then to your point, sometimes the outcome is as much about luck as it is anything. So if you can be transparent and have a standard operating process for how you make that that's a good quality one, that's one way to combat back against how people are going to judge you as a public servant or a public manager by this outcome bias. Correct, yeah. Very good. Thank you so much. See, you did great. That's fine. <laughs> Don't doubt yourself. Oh. All right, which one's next? Uh, next, we look at the anchoring effect, okay. uh, which is considering a particular value for an unknown quantity before estimating that quantity. Uh, and it happens in two steps. The anchor is made, and then an adjustment is made in your decision based on that anchor. Uh, they can be both provided to you, or they can be self-generated. Um, so an example that Kahneman gives is understanding the boiling point of water on top of Mount Everest. You set an anchor yourself with, you know, in Fahrenheit, boiling uh, temperature is 212 degrees Fahrenheit. So you use that to set your anchor and then you adjust based off the air temperature and the uh, oxygen quantity mm-hmm. from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so self-generated uh, typically are more reliable and have a better chance of being a correct value, uh, whereas provided are less reliable. Uh, and there was an experiment done to see uh, how the anchoring effect works in different types of groups uh, and how they work. Um, so groups that were working that were not process accountable and groups that were working co- cooperatively uh, were more susceptible, susceptible. me up here some weeks <laughs> to the anchoring effect, uh, whereas groups that were process accountable and that were working competitively were less susceptible to the anchoring effect. So the basic idea is, if you want to keep yourself from being locked into this anchor, mm-hmm. is to do sort of what we were talking about uh, that Caitlin was mentioning, which is have a defined, clearly defined process that causes you to estimate a close, uh, you know, base rate or a close average and then have an actual process for adjusting from there or a, like a standard operating procedure and that being held accountable to the process as much as anything mm-hmm. helps people be less susceptible to this, right? Yeah, and I found it interesting because in government we typically want to see process accountable, mm-hmm. uh, which is good because that makes you less susceptible, but we also want to see a lot of cooperation uh, which leads to more anchoring effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's understanding how to balance those two can be a tricky thing to do in the public sector. Mm-hmm. Um, and looking at the anchoring effect in uh, courtrooms specifically, uh, judges are anchored. 
uh, even though we see judges as like the highest esteemed public servants um, that aren't supposed to be affected by much, they after are still teachers, right? after teachers, <laughs> after, <laughs> after teachers, of course. Uh, they are still susceptible to any types of biases, and uh, at all different levels of courts, um, whether it be state or federal or even military. Mm -hmm. um, so typical problems they have is. Uh, sentencing caps and max punishments. Uh, Kahneman goes into that a little bit with uh, personal injury cases, that setting a um, max amount of monetary funds that you can receive in a personal injury case will lead all decisions to be closer to that max fund, because that will be the anchor set, uh, which will be good for um, plaintiffs uh, that deserve that, but it could um, also be good for companies that are very reliable, uh, or not reliable, very um, responsible for personal injuries. And it sets the max limit, and they might be um, responsible for more than that, mm -hmm. but it cuts that off. So it's not... So I think the way, the way I recall it is, like, it can be good if, if... It can be good for protecting against frivolous lawsuits getting way too much. Mm -hmm. But what it's bad for is, say the cap is a million, but someone actually did $2 billion worth of damage. Exactly, yeah. Uh, so some large multinational company that has a lot of resources in a lot of places, it helps protect them because even if they do $2 billion worth of damage, they are capped at, say, whatever, uh, $100 million or mm -hmm. something. And also it anchors uh, it anchors cases that when the damages are probably lower, say 50000 but the judge is anchored to the, the $100 million number, so it's likely to bring up the value of some of these smaller cases that might should stay small. Right. Yep. Mm -hmm. And that is an example with monetary funds. And the exact same effect could have, um, you could see that in year uh, punishments. So how long the sentence would be, you could have the exact same effect happen in that situation. Uh, so that's what we found with the anchoring effect. Very good. Thank you. Okay, so our third decision-making strategy um, is about minimizing the halo effect. Okay. And the reason that we say minimizing is because a lot of times this happens to be very abstract and it's hard to really identify when it's happening to us. Um, the common example used is for hiring managers. Um, so while they're interviewing a candidate, maybe the candidate was very polite and so um, they had a great first impression of them and they'll rank them higher on professional responsibility, even though they forgot to ask those interview questions and they didn't actually get a real answer. Um, they're more likely to, to rank them higher. Um, but it can actually um, be a little more subconscious. Maybe the candidate's laugh reminded the hiring manager of his mom, mm -hmm. and uh, maybe he didn't even consciously recognize that that was the case, but it still made him feel good, um, and that has um, an effect on how uh, the candidate is measured on their actual ability to do the job, even though that was really irrelevant. Yeah, on the on the flip side of that, you know, this you hear this in uh, business school, and we talk about it here at the Bush School. But this halo effect is so 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 strong. It's why we spend so much time focusing on interviewing, right? Mm -hmm. That's why there's all this uh, harking on you need to look the part and you need mm -hmm. to behave a certain way, right? Because in a split moment, right, the person interviewing you is deciding. Well, if you don't look and act like the people who we usually hire, we're not going to hire you. That's easy. Boom. You're out of the way, right? And this halo effect plays a really large role on who's chosen to hire. And on a hiring side, on people doing the hiring, we need to be really cognizant and considerate of the fact that these halo judgments really influence how we hire people. But on 
for you all that are going to be looking for jobs, you also need to remember this, right? That the hiring manager and the people you interact with are going to overweight how you look that day. They're going to overweight what your clothes look like. They're going to overweight how polite and pleasant you were over and above the value that that adds to your role as a, as a person in that organization. So it kind of comes at from both sides. Yeah, and there's a reason that this happens to us and why we do it. It's because we're trying to create a more coherent understanding of our world and cause and effect, and, and maybe sometimes it is right. Mm -hmm. Maybe someone who cares to dress more appropriately for a job interview would actually give some more effort um, into, their, into their job. But um, anyway, so then, though there is a reason why we, we do it, we're not always very accurate at applying it and understanding when it's happening to us. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, we wanted to um, really come up with some practical ways that um, public managers can uh, fight these biases um, that we encounter. And so uh, one that I found in the literature um, was in, in big conference meetings. A lot of times what happens is the more dominant personalities in the room tend to get their opinion in first. Um, and if everyone else in the room really likes that dominant personality, then yeah, okay, you know, I'll kind of sway my opinion towards them. Yeah. Or the opposite could happen and opinions are polarized yeah. because mm -hmm. of the Too anger. Too loud dominant people are saying things. Yep, different. Mm -hmm. yep. Absolutely, and so our recommendation is for um, if one topic of discussion is very important, because it's gonna take more time and effort for everybody involved, but if it's something very important, have everybody form their opinion before everyone gets in the same room write it down and then come to the meeting and discuss that um, because you should be able to get more um, relevant and truly um, individual opinions that way. Mm -hmm. that Everyone does it in advance rather than showing yeah. up and just listening and then you become victim of like group thing and right. everyone kind of coalesces around the person that they likes opinion rather than what their opinion was to begin with. So one way of combating this is have everyone write down their thoughts before they show up to the meeting. So you're at least getting a diversity of thoughts before everyone shows up. Right. Excellent. I like that one. That's good. The other one that uh, from the hiring process that uh, that Kahneman is also famous for doing for the Israeli army and uh, has a point, point out in, a, in other papers he's written is thinking about measuring uh, candidates on a number of aspects that you know are central to the job, right? Don't give them an overall number in the beginning. That's kind of asking for the halo effect, right? Mm -hmm. Have four or five categories that you think are important and rate them on those four or five categories and then just add them together. Right. And that's a better holistic uh, assessment of someone than just relying on your good old fashioned gut, <laughs> right? Right, mm -hmm. yes. Very good, thank you. And uh, so our fourth uh, biases was prospect theory that mm -hmm. I focused on. And um, the reason why I wanted to incorporate this into our um, understanding of like how public servants make decisions is because uh, provided in the text, Kahneman mentions with prospect theory, no one likes to lose. Mm -hmm. Like we all want to win. We all want to be able to have some type of gain with whatever decision that we make. And uh, Kahneman, he refers to not only prospect theory as loss aversion theory, but he considers decision-making under the conditions of the type of risk that are associated with the choices that we have when making a decision. And so, um, you know, for instance, you could be provided uh, maybe two options and uh, maybe described uh, how the options are described is depicting on the type of decision that you want to make. 
Um, and one of the examples that were used in communist texts was uh, kind of how government uh, responds to disease outbreaks. And so, you know, here we are faced with uh, two decisions that were opted for the public to uh, make a decision on. And depending on how you frame and evaluate that decision is the type of uh, choice that is made for the public. And so, uh, for instance, Kahneman said that uh, if you tell someone that 600 people will die from this particular disease and you frame it in a way where it's a loss instead of, well, 200 people will live from this particular disease, then people are more prone to um, go for the 200 people that will live than they would making the decision to um, pick the procedure or the treatment for the 600 people that will die. And even though the numbers are still the same in the calculation, uh, how you frame that particular question is ultimately the type of decision that the public will make. And um, I thought it was a good example because even looking at like the Ebola, um, I hope I'm saying that right, the mm -hmm. Ebola um, outbreak and how the government responded to that particular case, uh, we could kind of see where, for instance, uh, we had the media and the news saying that, you know, from we've had, we have a traveler who's from West Africa and um, now they're in Dallas, Texas, and we're not sure what to tell you, but you know, watch out. And you can just kind of see how the public would kind of go crazy and trying to figure out, well, what do I do? We don't know what this person looks like. We don't know how this particular disease could affect me. And um, instead of the government maybe uh, framing that particular incident in a way that the public could look at it and see, well, um, we don't have enough information yet or we're not particularly sure of how this disease could potentially affect me because it is rare, um, but because the government has given me these particular procedures or this particular frame of um, choice, then I know what to do going forward. Um, and so I think in that particular incident, incident, incident excuse me, you can kind of see some of the biases when it comes to your judgment of the way that you word things. And so if I say something the wrong way, then maybe the decision that is made from that particular person of how I worded it may not be perceived how I would have wanted them to, if that makes sense. Yeah, and, and, and prospect theory uh, is something I've been interested in since grad school as well. And there's, a, there's a, several important elements to it, but the the loss aversion one and the way things are framed are real two powerful analytical tools from it, I think. So the basic, you know, the basic idea, as you mentioned, is we make decisions from our current standpoint, right? From whatever, whatever money, whatever resources we have, we make decisions in with respect to that reference point where we are right now, not in terms of absolute terms. And in general, people don't want to be made worse off, so much so that it's like twice as important to them. So you'll pay uh, twice as much to avoid a loss, for example, right? And so, uh, um, so one of the things to be one of the things that prospect theory highlights is that we want to we really want to avoid those losses. And so, if you really want to get people's attention, you can frame you can frame things in avoiding losses, right? right? Like lives saved mm -hmm. rather than lives lost, Absolutely. right? Yeah. And so, it's a really I think important insight for one how you message things as public servants, right? Depending on what type of uh, what type of uh, responses you need to get something done with those you're negotiating with and those you're working with, how you frame things matters and how you frame things to different audiences based on their own reference point also really matter. Yeah, and, and you can also see it in not just like the, the government official realm world of things, but even in marketing, like for instance, if you go grocery shopping, 
and uh, you're looking to try and buy like some ground beef, you never see where it says 23% fat. You know, you're always going to see like, oh, well, it's 73% lean, 73% this. And so um, I think that, uh, yeah, a lot of the times, it, it, like you said, it is um, kind of like that trade off of values. And, I'm sorry. It just makes me think of like different types of meats I've come across. So it's like 90% lean meat, and you're like, well, what's the other? Well, and I 10%? never know what it means, but it just seems like it's the healthier option, right? And so that's, that's usually what. What I think the types of decisions that we make in our heads, like using that system one of thinking like, oh, okay, 73% lean. I think I'm going to get that because it's healthier. But um, <laughs> besides the point, it really is just a trade-off of values and determining like what your gains and your losses are. And um, ultimately, I think if you frame it in the correct manner, in a correct way, then you can make a better decision. The other hilarious marketing one is this whole big push for reducing fat in food. Right, and so like I remember Oreos had like these reduced fat things that they were advertising, and it turns out right, which people knew that some people knew this at the time, fat wasn't the problem at all, right? It was sugar, yeah. and so it was framed as like a fat problem and how we were reducing it, but instead they were just upping the amount of sugar and making the things worse. worse. <laughs> Gotta love it. I think that's four, right? So do we have one more? Yes. All right, bring us home. Yeah, the last one is confirmation bias. And confirmation bias kind of, it's like a lock and key mechanism with the other biases in the human brain where, you know, you have the halo effect or um, you have your anchoring bias and that's kind of like the lock on a door and then here comes confirmation bias along as a key and you have, yeah. Locks it in place. Yeah, it does. It really just locks it in place because you have these preconceived notions that you're working with that, you know, you're already saying, well, I believe this thing about this particular idea and so you have confirmation bias coming along with this key and you're just this is all the evidence that I'm ever gonna look for this is all the things that I'm ever gonna remember and you just kind of lock it in and that's the only thing that's gonna sit in your memory mm -hmm. and this is can be particularly dangerous for public servants because this means you're not suspending judgment to get more facts you're not thinking critically which is how you combat this um, and you're just saying well I believe that, you know, all people, um, what's a good example of this? Well, I'll just go with what I said in my paper. Um, you know, police officers, if they believe that all red cars are speeding, they're not going to look at other cars. They're just going to look at, you know, red cars. That's mm -hmm. the only people they're going to radar. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that, that can be dangerous whenever you're in a place of public service. Um, and you are trying to do the best thing mm -hmm. and the most unbiased thing. Um, yeah, uh, I could jump no, in. Yeah, no, I mean, one of the one of the example one of that one of the examples that makes me think of is the way that sports teams is the one that's probably most easily relatable, but also like agencies, mm. right? So say you're uh, what was the oh, I'm going to forget the teams that were playing in the championship games in football this year. Oklahoma, Bama, Notre Dame, Clemson. Uh, thank you. I got one from the audience. What was the one for the for the pro? Does anybody remember the pro? Patriots and uh, Rams. And the Patriots and Rams game is the one that had the real controversial call yes. that then went in the Patriots' favor, or was it the Rams Saints game? Rams Saints game. Exactly. So in the Rams and Saints playoff game, for those of you that watch football, there was a real controversial call, right? And I, I think of this in, like, I'm a, I'm a more of a baseball fan. And so in the 90s, for example, the Atlanta Braves were good enough for the National League 
but they were never good enough to win the World Series, right? The Yankees would kick their butts in the World Series every time. And so the I just decided I despised the Yankees, right? Because they were always beating my team. I didn't need any other reason, and it was New York, and that was far away from Georgia. That's where Yankees lived, and the team Yankees were, right? All these reasons to not like the team, right? And so uh, here I am 15, 20 years later, and if I hadn't really thought about it since then, I would still look for information for why the Yankees were crappy, right? Any type of story that came out of why they had done something that was maybe like, a rod taking steroids or whatever, you know, what have you. I was much more jumped up, jumping up and down about those stories because I had, it was all confirmation bias. I decided a long time ago, good guys, bad guys, bad guys. I'm looking for all the negative things I can find about, right? And that plays out in sports, but also plays out in a case that some of you had with me in 601 between different agencies that become competitive that need to work together. So you can think about the uh, New York Police Department versus the New York Fire Department at 9-11. These were agencies that had all of this uh, animosity built up towards one another. And they had all this confirmation that by a built up where they would find errors that the other one would make, so much so that this confirmation bias had led it to where they didn't care for one another. And that makes it really hard to coordinate or cooperate together. You have this halo effect confirmation bias locking it in towards other people that you need to do work with. Not even to mention on the ground judging entire groups of people based on your interactions with a limited few in that group, right? Very good. We covered a lot of these, and I think we are at our just over our 20-minute mark. So thank you, uh, thank you so much for your work, and I enjoyed the conversation. Yeah.